This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we talk AI, DevOps, and AI ops with Chris Murs and Ricky Martin. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipok. Zipok. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the basement of my house and with me today I've brought a couple of special guests to talk about uh, AI and DevOps and all sorts of different things. So uh, joining us today is Ricky Martin from Way Down Under. Uh, So Ricky, if you could, tell us what you do here at NetApp and how we can reach you. Um, So my name um, is occasionally John, but these days mostly Ricky. Uh, I work in the solutions marketing area, and I'm a director of strategy and technology. So I used to do that role in APAC, which was mostly talking to sort of senior sort of people in um, sort of our larger IT organizations and stuff like that, and figuring out what the trends were, figuring out what we were doing, where those two things intersected, and help them formulate their strategies, and then feed that stuff back into our like marketing and product operations and all of that stuff to make our what we sell to customers better for them. Um, so, yeah, now I'm doing that on a kind of much more global basis. So, um, yeah, I'm having a lot of fun with that one. Yeah, and what's great is generally speaking, what's better for the customers ends up being better for us because then they want to buy more. <laughs> well, it is one of those win-win things that actually works. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very cool job. I, I reckon I've got one of the best jobs in NetApp, so um, I'm pretty pleased. Excellent. Uh, if we wanted to reach you, how would we do that? Oh, yeah. So um, my Twitter handle is at John Martin IT, um, or you can just reach me at ricky.martin at netapp.com. All right. Also with us today uh, is Chris Mers. Uh, Chris, did I, did I say your, your name right? I mean, it, it, yeah, that's right. All right, cool. I didn't what, want you. What you see is what you get there. Yeah, I didn't want to call you like MRSA or something like the the, <laughs> the bacterial <laughs> infection. Uh, so, Chris, uh, what do you do here at NetApp? How do I reach you? Um, so what I do here is, uh, so I'm a, a technologist on, on Ricky's team, and uh, basically I apply my operations, engineering, and uh, solution architecture experience to uh, our sales and marketing efforts, as well as some feedback into product. And how I can be reached is at MERS Hybrid on Twitter. It used to be MERS DBA, but I am no longer a DBA. So I'm now hybrid MERS. Now you're a hybrid. Yeah. Mer, Mer, at MERS is my brother, so I had to go with MERS Hybrid. Half man, um, half beast. Yeah. He's so annoying for getting that way back when. But um, in any case, that, that, that's what I do. I, I work on understanding technology and translating that into uh, business value, business understanding, uh, and, and really discerning the needs of our customers and translating that back into technical requirements. So it's interesting because, I mean, you both mentioned that you're in solutions marketing, but you also have some pretty heavy technical backgrounds. So that's great because usually people think marketing and they're like, man. They're not going to understand my problem, but in actuality, getting more technology people into marketing helps them understand the problems even better. Yeah, that's what I'm really, really enjoying about uh, working uh, under James uh, as our CMO um, and Nancy as well. It's been a fantastic um, kind of evolution of, of marketing's uh, required skill sets. Yeah, market, marketing is not what people thought it was. It's certainly not what I thought it was when I took this gig on. Um, the the level of actual science and engineering that's going into it now is 
yeah, it's it's great. It's it's a such a one of those sort of hybrid things where you bring two apparently dissimilar things together and bring them together, and they it's yeah, it's like I said, it's a lot of fun. It's great because you you know you can leverage your creativity if you have it right, and then you can also leverage your technical side, so you can use both sides of your brain as opposed to one yeah, or the other. It, it is a whole brain activity. Yeah, um, that's what I love about this job actually. So, um, you know, today we're going to talk about a, a few things and, you know, we're going to talk about mainly something called AI ops, but we got to break that down first because some people don't know what that is. But first of all, people don't know what AI is and they might not know what DevOps is. So um, if they don't know, we're going to we're going to cover that now. So let's start off with our AI or artificial intelligence. Um, Chris, what would you call AI? Well, AI is artificial intelligence, right? The idea of advanced groupings of algorithms, you know, that, that perform discrete functions or are trained to, quote, think, unquote, about uh, specific data sets, right? You know, the idea of there's, there's data analysis, which we've been doing for, for a very long time. There's machine learning, which is a very interesting, you know, aspect of this where machines actually, you know, do tests and run programs and build data sets themselves based off the things they learn. Um, and, you know, search and, and organization sentiment analysis, things like that. But then AI to me is the decision-making process. When you say artificial intelligence, that can mean highly intelligent systems that inform you of things, or it can mean actually turning over that decision-making capability to the machine. And that to me is a turning point. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I started doing work on AI back in the, 80s when it was still basically an expert system, you know, the whole Eliza thing um, and just, just people just trying to pass the Turing test. I think when people think about AI these days, it's usually they're really talking about machine learning and more importantly, not just old school machine learning, but deep learning, the sort of stuff that came with, um, you, know, the, you know, the deep neural networks and things like that, because that's the stuff which kind of created the, you know, ended the last AI winter and this is where, I think there's there's more papers done every week now on machine learning in AI than were done in entire years on machine on just old school machine learning and old school AI previously. It's it's completely taken over most of the data science and um, work that I've seen like over the last sort of five years or so, and it's growing. And the interesting thing is that. Most of the stuff which I'm seeing people use this for, the first place I see people use it for, at least in IT, is they want to use it to enhance the automation inside their existing infrastructure. Um, so, you know, how do we de do anomaly detections to stuff like that, which machine learning is a lot better at than humans. There's certain things it will never do. I think generalized AI is a long, long way away. So I don't think we're anywhere close to, you know, the rise of the machines yet. But um, for certain things, it's... Just astounding what it can do. Funny you made that reference, uh, Ricky, because um, back in the early days of DevOps, we all knew that this is what we were doing. This was our eventual end goal, was an autonomous system, or at least as close as you can get. So they'd say, hey, boss, what are we doing today? I said, well, we're trying to create Skynet like we do every day, guys. So when it tries to kill us, we can go home. Yep. We hear a lot about AI across the board. And I know NetApp's been really hammering it hard. And it isn't just because that's where the money is, but that's because where everybody's going, right? This every every particular industry out there, whether it's financials or healthcare or, you know, you know, selling to stores, it's taking over, <laughs> you know, not like Skynet necessarily, but it's becoming more prevalent because it's useful. Um, you have these giant data sets 
And you in the past, you either had too much that you didn't know what to do with it, or you couldn't do much with it, or you didn't have the compute power available. But now that we have the compute power and the storage power, we're able to actually process all that. And then when you incorporate things like the cloud and, and being able to do that in a more cost-effective manner, uh, you really start to see the cost benefits of doing that in your business. So that's, I believe that's why you're seeing more of it uh, in the marketing infrastructure areas because that's it's you know that's where everybody's doing what everybody's doing these days. Well, I mean, that's the that's the basis of revenue and advertising, right? Is is content paired with data ops and data operations and data intelligence and targeting. I mean, we've seen this with the advanced micro-targeting capabilities for advertisements and social media. Um, you know, companies like Cambridge Analytica, folks like that who specialize in this. And to me, the crux has always been we can get to the point where we have these really, really interesting and intelligent tools that give us a lot of information and a lot of insights. But then how do we go about automating the actual decision-making process? Because you can think about it as a lot of these machine learning tools and intelligence tools are designed to basically increase the server to human ratio of an admin. But at what point do we actually say the system is autonomous? The system is self-healing. The system basically runs itself. We come in on Monday morning, we find out what happened over the weekend. And we are designing systems like that all the time. If you take a look at the element operating system within our HCI, NetApp HCI, and, and the basis of uh, some very interesting projects uh, for cloud right now, um, along with ONTAP, we've got a system that doesn't, it's not a recommendation engine. It doesn't tell you you should move this volume from this node to this node. It just does it. And it doesn't impact performance while it happens, and nobody notices. You can look at it in the logs. And, and, you know, you can find out the reasons for that if you dig into it, you know, and, and look at the data package from it. But why do we need to know? We need to, need to know the volume is available, the data is there, and it's running properly, right? Yeah, no, no you, you haven't met the SEs I've met. <laughs> they need to know. <laughs> no, and, and I'm speaking from a generalized sense. We're talking about cloud infrastructure, not yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. necessarily a storage system per se. I'm thinking more on the cloud infrastructure angle of things at that level of thinking. Yep. And there's another thing that a lot of stuff that isn't um, AI gets labeled as AI or a lot, lot of things which aren't really machine learning get labeled that way. Um, you know, I, I kind of refer to it as lie torch, where it's kind of like stuff where it's like, yeah, we make 150,000 billion you know, decisions per second. I'm sitting there going, that's like hand-coded algorithms will do exactly the same thing. You don't need machine learning to do that. Machine learning... Um, in some respects, sometimes it's a bit like, um, you know how you can't like polish a turd, but you can sprinkle glitter on it. There's a lot of things where there's a lot of like AI glitter has been like sprinkled over things um, when just, you know, some of the old school, just hand coding an algorithm works probably better. I think the places where it starts becoming really interesting is in stuff which used to require a human expert to make a decision. So um, like, Anomaly detection, like networks sometimes do really bizarre and weird things. Um, being able to have something which goes in there and understands and can learn over time based upon samples of data it gets and be trained on what are these new weird edge cases in networking look like and how do we fix them can do stuff like resolve troubleshooting time dramatically. Um, you know, and you know, think like I said, getting rid of the mundane, boring stuff. Um, for you know, troubleshooting and stuff like that, I think it's one of the best uses of AI that I've seen for people that I know. You know, I, I, for, for the work, the stuff that used to hurt me, there's stuff which I really wish that we'd had that technology like 10, 20 years ago. 
Well, the, the sad thing is, is we had the data 10 or 20 years ago. We just didn't know mm-hmm. what to do with the data. And we didn't have a way to process that data because when you collect auto supports from thousands of systems across the globe and you put them into a giant data lake or a data ocean, if you will, um, it starts to get a little overwhelming. Uh, it's, it's, you know, forest for the trees, needle in a haystack. Yep. And that, that was like, I mean, that's like Active IQ or what used to be referred to as ASAP or auto support. I mean, at one point in time, we were dropping that into all of those like, you know, millions of data points into an Oracle data warehouse, which I believe at one point was the world's largest Oracle data warehouse until we broke it because it had too much information. That's when we swapped out and started using the Hadoop ecosystem and then we reached the limits of what that could do to a great extent. And then now we're using and the great thing about um, AI and, you know, deep learning and stuff like that is it thrives on like massive, massive, massive data sets. The more data you get, give it, generally speaking, providing you tag it and curate it and sort of have some level of you know, enrichment, um, the better the recommendations and stuff like that comes out of it. Unlike, you know, some more traditional analytics where you're spending a lot of your time just trying to, reduce as much of the information out so you can see the forest for the trees because that's, you know, not something humans particularly good at after it gets to a certain scale, you know? I remember when I first started at NetApp, I started in the technical support organization and they stuck us in a conference room. It was like probably like 10 of us, uh, the new hires. And basically our job was take a look at these auto supports, um, find all the failed disks uh, and, you know, figure out what's going on in these systems we didn't give it a lot of guidance. So basically we're just pouring through all these logs and these auto supports, right? And our eyes are crossing and we're like, what is going on here? I don't understand any of this. And, you know, having something like active IQ that would just pluck those messages out for us and say, Hey, by the way, there's this problem here and here's the relevant log messages. And, you know, this is your corrective action that you need to take. It would really have helped. (laughs) Yeah. And what you're describing there is those, those power tools. Right. These are power tools for administrators, power, t- power tools for uh, for operators. Um, you know, it's like mechas, right? You know, Robotech, that kind of thing. Like you have this this exoskeleton now that allows you to lift way more than you were able to before and be much more efficient about it. But it comes back to that. When are we starting to replace the higher level human functions? And, you know, an expert can go in and diagnose a problem in about 10 seconds sometimes because they have, you know, decades of experience and a feel for it, like a gut intuition, because they're getting summary feelings from their own data processing in the background or however the brain works. Um, it's very similar, you know, but, but the curated data, like your data sources and how clean they are, how tagged they are, how, you know, if you have a data bog, you're in trouble, right? But if you have a curated, you know, data pool garden, which is what we have after 20 years at NetApp, um, it, it that it makes a difference between operationalizing and just kind of casting about and looking for direction with a sea of data. One of the things about DevOps, which is really cool, most of the attention ends up on the developer side of things. And the ops sort of seems to be like, you know, well, the developers have to do ops, so they, you know, have to write code that's easy to operationalize. Um, this is far more friendly to the ops side of the house. It, it kind of feels um, like it's built for the people I grew up with, so to speak, inside the industry. Um, and that's part of the reason why I like this sort of stuff is that it pays a lot of attention to things that I've cared about a lot over the last sort of 20-odd years of keeping things up and running and keeping them reliable. And 
a lot of the people who do that stuff are like me. They've got grey hair and grey beards and, you know, drink too much coffee and probably looking forward to retirement sometime in the next seven years. And there's not a lot of that kind of expertise going to be sort of coming back through the pipe because a lot of that stuff is being moved. A lot of that stuff is just not thought of as being important anymore. And I think that the whole promise, one of the promises of AI ops is it means that ops and the whole grey beard sort of, sort of mentality that goes with that, our job's going to go away and for really good reasons and will be replaced by something that will be a lot better at what we used to do. And I, I think that's really promising. Uh, wow. Ricky, that's, that's basically been a big part of my career path. You know, I was a, a side-based DBA when I started. At, well, I started on tech support, long story, but side-based DBA, okay? And reinventing yourself after being a side-based DBA, well, that's a little bit of a challenge. But when you've been learning Linux the entire time, and then this DevOps thing comes around. You know, in 2010, when when DevOps, the term was born, we realized that, uh, you know, the lazy sysadmins like myself had been automating ourselves out of jobs for years. Um, we're basically telling on ourselves now, and that's what DevOps is. You know, I, I, I automated myself out of that job. Okay, here's another one, right? Rinse and repeat. You find the bottleneck, you automate it, you rinse and repeat. And the operationalizing DevOps for operations, as opposed to the, the all the love we see for CI, CD and development and, and all of that, I think the opposite side of the, of the picture hasn't gotten enough love over the last 10 years. I think we've lost sight of some of the purpose of DevOps, was, which was not to streamline development. It was to streamline everything by putting developer principles and skills together with operational skills and principles and doing a cross-pollination and learning thereof. Um, and, and this idea of an artificial intelligence system has to be built on a lot of fundamentals. You know, you have an action come in, you have an alert, you, you, you've coded Say you run a large website with millions of users and you have a certain number of 500 errors that come in from your, your Nginx servers. This, this happens, right? Especially if you're starting you know, with an, a, a greenfield organic system that's been running. You have an acceptable level of 500s, maybe 0.001%, right? But if it goes above that, you know, somebody pushed code that went haywire. That's one way, you know, just an example of ways that you can start automating that type of intelligence into a system. Well, then what action do you take? You can, you can issue a CI CD rollback. Um, you can, you know, roll back to last known good code. All this can happen without any interference by an operator these days. And in fact, that's how we learned how to do these things by sharing these patterns between us. Um, you know, canaries, blue green, all that stuff. Um, but automating that even more and more, you know, once you've once you've set up a certain set of parameters for a system, there's only so many options you can make in a decision tree. Yeah. Right. And so you can automate a lot of that type of intelligence into reactive patterns for uh alleviating um dysfunction or you know an outage of some sort um so that kind of sounds like a nirvana to me where the whole thing gets done but and i sort of see most i still, still think there's a role for it to play in places which still do like old school runbook automation where it's kind of like you know we've seen these things you need to run you know we don't trust systems to automate yet and i still you know i don't know if that's like you know sprinkling glitter on a turd again um, or whether it's, yeah, what do you think you can actually run AI ops in or get the benefits of AI ops in a more traditional, old school, not DevOpsy kind of data center? You know, through recommendations or here's the next steps you need to take? Yeah, I, I absolutely think you can. I, I think you, uh, then you are generally implementing enterprise tools that probably have an AI element behind the scenes, right? So as an enterprise, I don't necessarily need to run AI ops. Uh, as long as, say, my monitoring system 
uh, has some AI ops capabilities in it. You know, so if I go in and you know I get an alert that there's uh, some type of misconfiguration in my system, and there's a recommendation or even a click button fix to go run an Ansible script, well, that that gives me the decision making power as a traditional operator. And I mean, I come from the oldest old school. The guys who trained me are retired, long retired, belt suspenders and overalls, right? Um, so as a DBA, giving over decision-making power to scripts or puppet or anything that's automated, much less an AI, you know, an, an advanced AI, that that causes some trepidation when you're coming from a from a traditional background. So right. w- would you say that NetApp has any sort of these monitoring utilities that might be of use? Several. Um, actually, the two that come to mind are, are ActiveIQ uh, for for uh, our you know we have data center telemetry across thousands upon thousands of systems and uh, anonymized data aggregation, um, all kinds of stuff, and then Cloud Insights, which of course is is uh, more more cloud oriented, but it also allows you to uh, monitor your on premise assets from any vendor, uh, so you can monitor things like migrations to the cloud, uh, performance before and after, that type of thing. Uh, very useful. So let's start with ActiveIQ. You know, we mentioned earlier how that kind of spawned from auto support, um, and it became something else because we, we realized we had these giant pools of data, uh, and we weren't doing enough with it. And we we could start learning from that data. We could start seeing trends, and we could start taking the tribal knowledge that people were getting in the support centers and turning it into applications and making the tribal knowledge be accessible to even the newest of engineers or the newest of storage administrators out there. So let's, let's talk about active IQ and how it's evolved and where it's going. That's a, that's a fantastic point. You know, the, all that knowledge base type of stuff, uh, once it's codified and put into a system that's accessible and democratized, that allows a, a lot of that, you know, kind of old school, um, if you will, oral tradition uh, to be de- democratized, much like the printing press did. And these types of tools then allow us to even maybe as less experienced operators take actions that we know are going to be secure and safe and validated because they're in the system as, as authorized actions to take or recommended actions to take. Um, so, you know, this, this knowledge is not just coming from word of mouth. It's coming from um, the process of putting it into the, into the application and program of AIQ. Um, and I've seen many, many applications of it. You know, there's, there's things that can uh, AIQ can actually help you prevent uh, ransomware attacks or recover from ran- ransomware attacks. There's all types of, of applications of this intelligence. Um, the question is, where are you starting from? Well, what type of automation monitoring do you have? And what are your goals with, with regards to machine learning and, and uh, artificial intelligence? And, and what tools can you use in the meantime uh, to give you a leg up and give you a good starting basis? So, Chris, weren't you involved in, like, the active IQ to, you know, bringing in this, the the solid fire portions of, of that and how that went to market and sort of marrying that with the, um, the older sort of auto support yeah. stuff. Yeah. At a previous life, I, I, so I was, I'd come over to be a solution architect and, uh, I'd been working with a lot of, um, no SQL systems and, and cloud technologies and uh, previously DevOps. And so I was asked to, uh, quickly build out the prototype system in the cloud, uh, for, for running this on, uh, with a no SQL backend. And we had you know, a bunch of engineers and developers working on data collectors, uh, for solid fire and element, and it was a natural, natural architecture to use cloud-based architecture and and to go with uh, some of the more agile technologies. So I kept asking them. I said, "So if I build this thing for you, am I going to be responsible for it? Am I going to be on call again? Because I can't do that. Did that for 14 years." They said, "No, just build the first one, please." Uh, which of course meant I was on call for the next year. And uh, <laughs> we we blew up the Mongo backend. We replaced it with Cassandra. We replaced it with with 
couch base. It, it, it ended up doing a polyglot system that, you know, using the best tool for the job, depending on the type of data, whether it was columnar or, uh, you know, object or whatnot. And then when, you know, during the, the acquisition by NetApp, you know, ASAP is this is amazing, amazing data set and, and tool. And then the potential of merging those two together into the new active IQ and then adding, um, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, even, you know, Watson as a, as a, as a part of the application really developed this into a totally new and, and frankly, um, ready for the next 10 years, uh, type of, 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 it's not just monitoring and alerting. It's, it is, it is way more than that. And now that active IQ feeds directly into cloud insights, uh, we're starting to get to the best of both worlds, both on-premises data and telemetry collection, as well as all the various types of cloud insights and, and uh, Kubernetes uh, monitoring as well. Because that's one of the things about machine learning, I kind of touched on this beforehand, is it's great that you've got your neural networks and you've got your, your, your training, your models and all the rest of this sort of stuff. But if you don't have that really large amounts of enriched data um, and tagged data, that's the real meat in the sandwich from my perspective that that's where you can you can't you can't retroactively go back and gather 20 years worth of data you can rapidly iterate and create new functionality and and do cool things with it but having that data set is something that most people just don't have in fact i can't think of anybody else that has the same level of data which for a customer who might be listening to this then the thing is, start gathering and keeping all that telemetry now because you might not be able to get use out of it now, but you should start being able to build onto that going into the future because the stuff you're gathering now is the thing you'll be refining and pushing, you know, getting value out of going, going forwards as well. You know, um, I don't, don't think you can, you can, there's no substitute for good data, whereas you can, no, you have to. can develop stuff a lot more quickly. You have to have a baseline. If you don't know where you're starting from, you don't know where you're going or how you're doing on that journey. So putting on my DevOps hat, uh, over the last year for NetApp, I was a uh, technologist focused on DevOps and, and cloud native technologies. And, you know, I will tell you that the that analytics is always mentioned last in like the pillars of DevOps, analytics and observability. But to me, it is both the alpha and the omega of DevOps. If you do not have good data, you cannot make intelligent decisions. So if you think about a human, we go into the hospital, we have telemetry on three to six points, heart rate, uh, blood pressure, OXAT, a couple of other things maybe. With a complex hybrid system with many moving parts, you're talking about thousands of telemetry data points that you're collecting on uh, you know, a very frequent basis in many cases. So you know, what kind of system do you implement to, to aggregate all of that? How do you then uh, apply your learnings and knowledge to that and codify it so that you can pass it to the next junior admin who takes over? That that takes a long time to do organically to do it right. And that's why it's really important to evaluate the tools, not just the promises of their marketing, but the actual effectiveness in, in real use cases uh, that you're going to use to augment and give yourself a, a, a leg up on that journey um, towards more efficient business, frankly. Yeah. So from a DevOps perspective, do you think that, because we talked a little bit about sort of making it so that you know, you can just get the recommendations or this is what we're seeing on your system or these are the, you know, this is when you're going to run out of capacity or, you know, your network's foobar, please go and, you know, fix your, you know, your, um, your GBIX. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that that whole idea of making those recommendations feed into ap application level stuff and sort of distributing that intelligence so that you can end up with more, intelligent DevOps, do you think that's something which has 
happening already or do you think that that's something which is like a grand vision future or what do you, where do you see that happening? Uh, it's all a spectrum, right? You know, the, the William Gibson famously said that the future is here. It's just not very evenly distributed. And uh, he's very right. You know, you look at something like uh, Alexa or Siri, and you can see artificial intelligence at work in our in our daily life. You know, I I tell my kids to go Google something, and they ask Siri. I'm like, that's even lazier than I was. Good lord. <laughs> um, you, you know, but seriously, so we we expect this in our daily lives, and the, and the next generation coming up is absolutely going to expect it in our lives. Computers are here to help us; they aren't here to hinder us. And remembering that relationship is very very important. Um, as someone who's worked from within inside the system most of his career. Sometimes you feel like you're a slave to the machine, and that's that's not. This is about turning that relationship back on its right head and, and putting the business and the people in the business in charge of that, and not letting your technology consume you. So, like implementing and bringing AI ops into an organization has that same spectrum of adoption that every new technology has. You sort of begin yep. with it in small bits and pieces, optimize little bit your know, stuff, make existing processes better, but you're really going to start getting the big benefits out of it once you reorganize your processes to take advantage of it and truly automate all the way end to end. Yeah. You have to start with basics. You really do. I mean, yes, you, you can go the route of, of buy versus build and you can do it add on and tack on uh, of AI to a lot of different types of systems. But if you design your systems with data at the fundamental center of things, knowing that you can make intelligent decisions on that data later, even if you don't have the AI operating then, if you start thinking from a data lake perspective early on, then you set yourself up for success later on. And and that, as an architect and an engineer, you really want to think one to five years out at least. It's it's not a you know we think quarter to quarter a lot of times, and it's it's not good design uh, to do that. You know, um, but but we this is another ops washing, right? So we've got DevOps, we've got DevSecOps, we've got data ops, we've got AI ops. It's another ops washing, but this is a particular application of artificial intelligence to the fundamentals, in my opinion, of DevOps um, and, and what we consider modern operations. Whether you're in the data center or on the cloud, it looks pretty much the same. So uh, speaking of cloud, you, you mentioned Cloud Insights. That's, an, that's another thing we have at NetApp to kind of do similar things, but this time cloud resident. So you know, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I mentioned uh, that, that ActiveIQ, AIQ, now feeds into uh, Cloud Insights, which is fantastic. So, so we've got uh, whichever direction you're coming from, whether you're coming from a more traditional data center or if you're coming from Cloud Down, uh, you've got access to the same uh, data sources, which is pretty fantastic. Cloud Insights, uh, the first two things I learned about Cloud Insights in terms of practical application were um, find all the VMs you're not using and you're paying for and turn them off. And within a, a minute, I was able to see thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of savings from my monthly cloud bill just by doing that one search function and then automating uh, the result to be and turn them off once you find the result set. Uh, the other thing was uh, real practical application was looking for stranded storage, right? Data volumes that literally aren't connected to anything, um, whether in the cloud or on premises. Again, Cloud Insights works for both, uh, and it's not just NetApp gear that it can plug into. We have common APIs and interfaces to allow you to plug in uh, all vendors gear into Cloud Insights. Because if you don't know where you're coming from, you don't know where you're going. So start with Cloud Insights to know where you're coming from. Yeah, I think it's interesting you sort of mentioned that use case because the whole thing about run the report, find the stuff that needs to be turned off, go, whoa, I can turn off a whole bunch of this stuff and then go and turn it off. And you go, the next step for that would be, why don't I create a policy engine and go through and do that for me? And then it just turns out that we bought an entire company 
whose entire business model is that in spot like yesterday. You know what I mean? You're so, spot on, Ricky. It's yeah. There's the boom tish. Yeah. There's it is that sort of spectrum of stuff because I mean it's funny. While we were doing this, I just got an email from you know from another organisation sort of saying you know demystify AI ops blah 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 blah. And their final thing was it's all about predictive analytics. And I'm sitting there going predictive analytics is actually really cool because knowing what's going to happen or like you know is well predicting the future is where a lot of money is. But I still think that it's better to have these things plugged into actual operational stuff which you can automate. I think that's the real ops part of, of AI ops. Like, the, you know, you, it's not just about coming up with cool reports and going this is what's going to happen or these are the badly behaved machines or here's where you're wasting money. It's about how do you then take that and turn that into something that delivers a result, that is like dropping, you know, of dropping your Amazon bill by 50%, for example. And I, I think that, you know, AI ops doesn't have to be something you implement. It can be something you can just take advantage of that exists in other softwares as a service. What if I want yeah, to buy point. an AI ops? Can I buy one? What about? <laughs> yeah, I could tell you DGX uh, system, uh, a NetApp AI um, engine. I, I've got a, a bundle of solution package for that, but... First, I'd actually ask you what you mean by that and what you're trying to. I just want an AI ops. I hear they're really them. awesome. I mean, they're. Uh, you can actually find that on the same aisle as the DevOps. Uh, you can go get six DevOps on aisle three, and you can pick up AI AI ops right next door. Yes, it's the sauce you sprinkle on top. There's some glitter. There's, there's the, the AI ops glitter. Didn't I talk about that beforehand? Oh yeah, yeah. I think you did. Tongue in cheek aside, I mean, Justin, you, you hit on something I say in almost every talk I give, which is you can't go out and buy a DevOps. I mean, you can buy. You know, Azure DevOps, which is a great CI/CD tool set. You can buy all kinds of tools or access to the to the software, but to do DevOps, you have to change how you do your job, and you have to want to make it better. It's DevOps very much embraces the same principles as Agile, uh, the same principles as old manufacturing, uh, Toyota method, um, Kaizen, all kinds of things that that we've been you know passing passing down for years. And this is the application of the same principles uh, and the efficiency that you get out of application of those principles um, to data. You know, we've done it We've done it for operations and infrastructure with DevOps and, and the development process. Now we're doing it with data. You know, how do we operationalize data? Because machine learning and data lakes and data analytics are all fun and, you know, fine and well. Um, but what are you getting out of it? How do you operationalize it? Business intelligence, we've wrapped our heads around. Um, but what about operational intelligence? And what do we do with it? And I think we've, we've, said, we've hit on this several times, but at what point do you, turn that decision-making power over to machine. Depends on how critical the function is, right? So are you finding in this pandemic where people are having to do more remote work and, and not able to be on site at places that there's more interest now in this kind of story? Absolutely. I think that um, what 2020 has done for me is I see the rest of the world very much thinking the way that uh, operators and admins have for 20 years. How do we do this remotely? How do I do this from my home? How do I do this during my kid's birthday party? Um, you know, this whole idea of automation and self-healing systems is, is, is self-interest driven. As an admin and an ops guy, I really don't want to be up all night babysitting a data migration. I really don't. I really don't want to say, I'm sorry, I can't do that this weekend because we have a maintenance window 
So you take the kids and go, well, I work on this. That's ops life, dude. Right. And everyone who's done that job knows the sacrifices you make. And what is the admin? What is the sysadmin's credo? What is the ops credo? It is if, if we're doing our jobs right, they won't know we exist. Yeah. Right. And so if we're doing AI right, we don't, we don't know it exists. <laughs> I, think, I think the same principle applies. It's just going to augment our daily routine. Yeah. I, I'm seeing people accelerate. Yeah, it's kind of like that thing about who's, you know, who's had the most impact on your digital transformation, your CEO, your CIO, or COVID. And in most cases, it's COVID has like accelerated all these digital transformation initiatives. And I think the same is true yep. of people trying to do drive, you know, to automate, or to, to take things forward that they've been sitting on the fence about because everybody's in so much risk now that like taking that extra risk now doesn't seem like a bad thing. It seems like this is going to get out of where I'm at right now. When two quarters are already in the, in the, in the crapper. You can take some extra chances, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like, yeah, well, you know, our revenue's already gone down. Like nobody's going to notice if it goes down by another, because my AI, because my you know ops program didn't work quite as well as I thought. But I think that what we're seeing is that, people are sort of looking at what can I buy now? And that sort of comes back to can I buy, you know, can I buy, an, can I buy an, an AI ops in a box? And we were kind of joking about it beforehand, but to a certain extent, if you just turn on auto support or you turn, you actually start leveraging the stuff which is inside the new NetApp support site, if you're a NetApp customer, you're getting the benefit of a whole bunch of AI ops right now. If you look at buying spot, right, you're benef- getting the benefit of, all those AI ops like capabilities because you're, you know, you are doing all that automation, all of that monitoring, all that checking. That is stuff that you can buy now, right? The other stuff which is harder, the things which are embedded inside, you know, your existing practices or just fixing up, you know, like network anomaly detection or whatever the case may be, and you know, going and buying your DGXs. We can do that, but I think that a lot of people are looking for what can I get now that builds on the benefits of AI ops that will give me results like yesterday because that's when they need them. They just don't have time to build an entire practice and hire a bunch of data scientists and build their models and start collecting data that they should have started collecting five years ago. Um, So I I think that there is a sense of urgency around delivering the benefits of it rather than just fiddling around the edges and starting uh, pilot projects. So I think that's another interesting sort of change that I've seen over the last little while. To put that in a, in a context, I would say that for NetApp customers who might be listening, you know, go check out ActiveIQ. You get it with your sport contract and it's maybe more powerful than you think. And for customers who may not be NetApp customers currently, um, think about, you know, the, the investment required to hire, you know, uh, developers and, and data analysts and data scientists and, and putting all that effort into creating a generic AI ops engine. Uh, and working with the open source community and all of that you get for free just by being a NetApp customer because we have teams dedicated to these projects ongoing. So you get the benefit and results of that in AIQ. So like, um, you know, another thing I've noticed with COVID and, and working from home, I mean, it's it's had two effects in my opinion. First effect is it's broken down that fear of what happens if everybody has to work from home because that's been kind of like a a roadblock for some managers that are kind of thinking in the old terms of everybody needs to be in the office, everybody needs to be present to be productive. 
we're starting to see that's not true, <laughs> right? We're no, seeing... we've taken that we've taken that old one out behind the woodshed and put it down. Yeah, okay, so that... we've been talking about this for twenty years. We yes. can do it from anywhere. It's the internet, man. Yep. So so that's that's challenge number one was basically breaking down that that wall, and and all it took was a pandemic. I mean, right. <laughs> business continuity yes. you know because who keeps who who handles business con- continuity at two in the morning ops john martin ops guys because he's yeah, in australia well, john does because he's, he's an australian in, um, <laughs> but the ops team does and, and the ops team does this has been going on for forever it's just now everyone's realizing that they have to be just as available and just as reliable as their ops team mm. you have to be able to do what you do from anywhere and if that means dialing in to a dial-up modem with your StarTac plugged into your laptop from the Home Depot parking lot to bounce a server in Germany, that's what you do. Yeah. You figure out how to make it work. And now everyone's doing that for every function within the business, not just IT ops. And the second thing that people are realizing is, yes, we can do this at home and it, and it works. But now we're seeing that there's better ways to do it. And that's where the AI ops, where we're DevOps, that's where all these other things that people have been wanting to do for a while start to make a whole lot more sense. Well, the time to invest is now because it's, it, I mean, it's quite obvious that being able to keep your business running from any geographic location during any circumstances are paramount importance. Uh, and, and some folks have, have had to deal with that for a while uh, based on the, the needs and, and requirements of their business. And other, and other types of businesses are just kind of learning that out, out of a reaction to, to the events of this year. Um, but in any case, you know, I, the compression and acceleration of these digital transformation timelines has been apparent uh, in the last several months. And, and one might have predicted that happening due to the nature of this event globally. Um, but it's very interesting to see it actually happening in real time. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of the most you know, drastic changes in how industry works or how things are done usually happen because of big events in the world, whether it's a war or there's a famine or there's a drought or there's a stock market crash, you know, things that are out of our control now become things that we try to control through our day-to-day operations. Necessity is the mother of invention and uh, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? You know, to, to string, string sayings together, but that's where, you know, looking at your architecture, looking at your business models and practices, looking at, uh, you know, how is, how and where is your data placed? All of these things are very pertinent um, when looking at a future that involves, you know, core edge, cloud, AI, DevOps, cloud native anywhere. Um, There's a lot of trends that are converging to really make a new normal. So, so Ricky, this is something that you have to do on a, on, of pretty frequent basis. Give me your elevator pitch for the NetUp story of AI ops, what we're doing, and how it all ties together. My elevator pitch would be, one, start gathering high-quality metrics around what you're doing inside your data center and store them securely and well, right? That's, that's If you're going to build your own AI ops capability, it starts on a foundation of data. Now, you can do that with open source tools, open source tools like um, the Elk Stack, or you can do it on the Hadoop infrastructure, or you can do it with Splunk. These are all great solutions. Pick one of them and execute on that really, really well. We've got some great technology to help you do that because NetApp is about helping you change the world with data. So it begins with data, right? If you 
want to start just getting benefits straight away from the things that AI ops can do, take a look at the things we're doing with Spot. Take a look at the things that we're doing with Active IQ to help you do stuff that will give you benefits right away, right? And likewise, take a look at what we're doing with Cloud Insights. All of these things will help you bring AI ops practices and benefits straight away while building a foundation for your future, right? It's going to be one of those things where you're Biggest benefits are going to come after you change your operational practices, but don't start. Don't start the. Um, don't wait until those operational practices are in place before you start gathering the data and before you start investigating the kinds of benefits you can get out of software as a service. Um, because this is going to be the foundation for, like, how you survive—not just survive, but thrive once people like Chris and I are all sitting in Miami or the Gold Coast or wherever it is people like us go and retire to because a lot of that, your current like non-artificial intelligence around operations and what works and what doesn't in the field won't be there in five to 10 years' time. So you need to build this infrastructure now. We'll start building it now and it starts on a foundation of data. That's what I would say. All right, Chris, does that check out? Totally checks out. All right, good. Um, I, would, I would add one thing. Uh, I have started to meet uh, folks at trade shows that have never done anything in production other than Kubernetes and containers. Let that sink in for a minute. So if we're doing old school operations, where are we going to get our talent pool from? Mm. It's going to be kind of like when New Jersey needed that COBOL programmer. <laughs> I mean, I'll come out of retirement for the right price, I mean, as long as I'm kicking, but I'm just saying. Wanted, crusty old Sybase administrator. To, to quote the guy who, who laid me off uh, from a major multinational after 10 years, 10 years of service, um, heroes don't scale. <laughs> Spider-Man does. And I really didn't like that dude for a long time, but you know what? He was right. He was yeah. absolutely right. Heroes don't scale. This is true. All right, Ricky, Chris, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, talking all about AI ops and all sorts of different uh, tangential topics here. Uh, Ricky, if we wanted to reach you, how did we do that? Uh, again, you can either send me a send something to me on LinkedIn, um, or which is uh, John Martin IT, or you can find me on Twitter, which is also John Martin IT, or um, you can reach out to me via email, which is ricky.martin at netapp.com. Can we poke you on Facebook? You cannot. The only thing you'll find me on Facebook is um, family members and uh, pictures of my cats. Do you, do you remember the pokes? They I, these, I don't, I don't I, know what I, the pokes I, were. I don't know do what they were. Do, do they still exist? I, I kind of boycotted Facebook a little I don't, while Yeah, ago. I don't know what it does, but it was weird. It was weird. You can't poke anyone anymore. I think you wave at them now. Oh, okay. I, th- less, less I, I think I got the surge, but it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, your mother has just poked you. It's like, uh, you know, yeah, mom, <laughs> mom, no. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Chris, if we wanted to reach you, how do we do that? Uh, you can email me at chris.mers at netapp.com. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter at MERS hybrid. And occasionally I check LinkedIn in mail. Um, other than that, that is, uh, that's it. 
All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via TechOnTapPodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Chris Murs and Ricky Martin for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.